In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with my friend Nick Scappatici, co-founder and CEO of Tellart. Tellart formed over 20 years ago and is an experienced design firm filled with a fantastic group of explorers, inventors, and storytellers. In 2016, Tellert was recognized for their contributions to interaction design, and they received the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. We discussed the power of narrative in design, how narrative and experimental design help us understand complex ideas. Our conversation covers narratives, complexity, meaning, design, and why it's important to carry a sketchbook. We touch upon the ways Tellart approaches technology and experience design, as well as their fantastic documentary series, Design Nonfiction. We explore technology as a material in design rather than a solution. The concept in design nonfiction and storytelling and information design combined to impact experiential design and how Tellart prototypes at scale to examine preferable futures. We cover the importance of drawing and creating a visual language in prototyping and design, and the intention of design. At its heart, design is still a collaborative and iterative process that requires us not to hold our solutions as precious. And one of my favorite quotes from Nick from this conversation regarding young designers and and looking at their portfolios, show me your sketchbook. Don't show me what you've done. Show me how you've done it. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Thanks, Nick. Uh, pleasure to have you uh, on this episode of the Iowa Idea. And just to get started, if you don't mind, for our listeners, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Nick Scavatici, and I'm one of the founders of a company called Tellart. And we are a strategy and design studio that delivers experiences, products, and services. Um, Most of our work uses new and emerging technologies as a way to uh, kind of elevate the experience that people have with a brand or an institution or a manufacturer. Um, Anybody who is a client looking to kind of create new and transformative ways to engage audiences We've been doing this for for 20 years um, until it started back in 2000 in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, today we have an office. uh, We still maintain an office in Providence, uh, but we have an office in Amsterdam and we're about a 20 person company. Um, So rather small, uh, but over those years, uh, we've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of kind of major brands, um, anywhere from kind of Google to uh, Samsung, and um, even governments like the UAE, the government of Dubai and the UAE, um, as well as museums um, and other cultural institutions. Yeah, and you uh, you were also, uh, a couple of years ago, you did some uh, really uh, innovative work with, uh, with Toyota. Do you mind talking about that just a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, This was going back um, to, I think, around 2016, 2017, somewhere in there, uh, that we had the opportunity to work with uh, Toyota um, on a new concept car that they were trying to bring to life. And Tellart was brought in uh, to help kind of use technology uh, uh, as a way to bring this car to life and, and help them deliver um, a narrative that expressed this vision that a Toyota had for their um, for autonomy, and um, it was a kind of interesting situation to, or kind of interesting kind of community of people to to be a part of um, developing this idea because the car industry doesn't kind of quite work in the in the way that. Um, this project needed to come off, um, you know, typically, um, with concept cars, uh, they would, um, you know, the exterior team and the interior team would kind of do their thing. Uh, and they would kind of develop a style and a look for the car. This car would then go to a model maker and this model would be created. And, and this model, uh, this kind of full size model would be used as a, 
as a kind of illustration, a kind of 3D illustration of, of a look and a feel and a vision for uh, the, 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 the product line. Um, but in this case, uh, the Toyota research uh, and design and their design team um, wanted to use this car as a way to tell a different kind of story, um, a story that talked about autonomous vehicles, that integrated artificial intelligence, that had this kind of personality, um, and it needed to um, illustrate this vision of the future of autonomy and kind of design and, and with that deliver an immersive user experience uh, that people could engage with. And so um, there was a lot of um, kind of new methods that have operated into this traditional practice. Um, and we got to kind of work in between uh, a lot of brilliant teams at Toyota. Um, and ultimately this car was presented um, to the public at CES um, in 2017. And um, now I believe it's kind of traveling a bit around the world and um, it should have, could have, maybe still will make its debut at the Tokyo Olympics uh, or yeah, coming up. Coming yeah. up next year now. Right, right. No, that's that's cool. Uh, one of the things from a design perspective that fascinates me about this project, as, as you were talking about, you know, there's a traditional way that car manufacturers kind of design their their concept cars, and I feel like one of the things that your team did was uh, apply more of almost a, a zooming out principle of a car is part of a, a greater system, and also how does it interact with that system rather than just being a a car. Is that a kind of a fair take? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, um, you know, by nature, um, while we while we use technology um, and we kind of get involved with code uh, to bring interaction to life, we kind of work as more kind of pragmatic strategists and designers to to help really kind of think through concepts and iterate with our clients. I mean, we're, we're storytellers and we're communicators and this is a complex story to be told. Um, and it, and it's that, and it is that because of not, not just Toyota's position as a, as a company or, or this, um, the fact that they, they hadn't really kind of thrown their hat in at this point in time in the autonomous, autonomous vehicle space. Um, they haven't really kind of at that point kind of planted their vision for it. But you have to look at the condition of the world and the condition of the car industry itself. Um, and understanding that condition helps to kind of dial in that story that, that can be told in a way that's meaningful and resonant with, with individuals. And so, you know, you look at the five levels of autonomy and you look at kind of where the industry was and where they're looking to go, that in combination with um, the fact that we, in, in, as, as, as a, as a, you know, as a country or as a, in, in the world in general, in, in the cities and how they're planned, um, we haven't really designed. They, these cities aren't designed for this kind of autonomy that exists. But then I think you get, you know, and then and then you get, you know, and those are kind of more broader views. But then you get down to the individual, the user that that. And that user is, you know, of the, the kind of next generation of, of car buyers aren't really buying cars. Uh, and there's a there's a bit of a decline in in I guess, you know, there's a decline in the love for cars in general. Uh, you know, we don't have this kind of nostalgic fascination with the vehicle as as maybe generations of past did because we have shared services, we have you know, city living, um, we have, you know, bicycle and, but you know, bike commuting, and we have all of these other means of transportation. And, and even now, um, in, in the time that we're facing, I mean, kind of the, the, the it, it, transportation is almost becoming an obsolete thing. Uh, we don't need to actually get anywhere anymore to, to do our business. We can kind of stay put a little bit more and, and be comfortable with that. So that, that's an interesting space to try to tell a story about a car. Uh, that that and a vision for the future of cars, um, and, and in this case, um, you know the the thing that we focused in on was 
the relationship you have with your car and the kind of meaningful impact it has on your life and how the meaningful impact that it can have on your life in the future and how it kind of dovetails into your story, um, how it helped to amplify it at times in your life, how it helped to take care of you at times um, and how that is um, not a, uh, it's not a service that replaces a, a task of driving. It is actually a relationship you have with an object. Um, and a relationship is, is at its best when it's a two-way street, when each party is doing, is, is offering a value. The driver has a value uh, to the car because it makes great decisions, uh, better decisions maybe at times, uh, but not all the time. And, and in those cases, the car should be responsible. Um, and so we, we tried to create a set of a scenario uh, and develop a set of interactions that highlighted how that, how that could play out and how that does play out with the concept I. Thanks. I want to dig in because uh, a couple times you talked about narrative and storytelling, and I know that's an important piece of Tellart's work. And uh, my my understanding too, so much so that that that's part of part of the naming process that you went through. Sure. Uh, it the name the name Tellart is comes from the art of storytelling, and the kind of foundation of our practice is that through. Um, Kind of interactivity and through um, that you know that the foundation of uh, the foundational idea of our practice is that through participation and interactivity that complex ideas can be understood and made meaningful because we believe that understanding comes through effective storytelling um, and this kind of you know this is more important now I think than than ever you know the kind of the stories that that we that we tell each other really matter, and they matter more and more um, in in a time where technology sometimes takes the front seat uh, in in a lot of um, kind of experiential marketing things that we see, or or any kind of new product. It's very, you know, the story about that product, its usefulness, is very feature oriented. Um, but you know the if we, um, so while kind of organizations are, are trying to cope with these various technologies, you know, really, um, and, and really the kind of materials and the opportunities are evolving so rapidly that they, they can't quite um, understand them and operationalize them. And, 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 the, and the technologies itself are, becoming, you know, the, these systems are becoming so complex and so uh, opaque at times right. uh, that we don't really understand how they work. And that's, and that's pretty problematic. And, and yet it's still a material and it still has properties and behaviors and all of that. But I just, you know, my, our point of view is that out of all of this, the most powerful of the technologies is our stories because stories help Kind of organize people in in good uh, and and sometimes bad ways. Uh, and with stories, we're able to describe not just things that are, uh, but also be able to describe things that have been, uh, and even about things that will be, like the future. Right. Right. Yeah. And and also, you you can put things into context, right? And almost put humans on a on a narrative line from from past to preferred future. Right, and because shape, because these stories kind of allow us to shape a like a collective imagination, right? And our ability, and 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 like you're saying, they kind of they give us this ability to align people towards a certain goal, and and sometimes make them behave in a certain way um, that isn't quite determined by you know our DNA, you know, rather, but rather by a by a collective kind of understanding that 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 we're trying to present. Um, and, and it allows our audiences to evolve really quickly if we tell stories correctly. Uh, and if we yeah. tell them in a way that is compelling and engaging, we can kind of move them towards an understanding, a, a lot of them, towards an understanding in a very short amount of time. When I think, too, uh, you know, from a communication perspective, why I like the notion of uh, stories and narratives is 
I believe that humans are wired to, it's the best way that we can convey uh, meaning and, and basically complex stories is, is through, or complex information is through narrative and stories, right? It's, it's really hard for people, generally speaking, to di- digest lots of complex data, you know, if it's a, a table or a spreadsheet, for example. But you can tell a story and it's more memorable and people can tease out the, the important things or what generation to generation to what, you know, the long lasting nature of stories. But also, like you said, the, the a shorter version that if we understand kind of where the narrative's going, it can help guide us. Right. So when you, so you started uh, Tallard about 20 years ago, uh, and, you know, as you were talking about uh, kind of an approach or the point of view that, that you have towards technology itself and you mentioned treating it like a material was that from the get-go because uh, i mean we've we've seen a lot of uh technology advance and change in 20 years but was was the treatment of technology kind of there from the beginning for Tellart from a studio perspective um yeah i mean our our studio our studio kind of evolved in the early days you know in close collaboration with education um and in um you know we had this we did we did have a belief i think coming out of school in the you know 99 and starting tellart in 2000 um where this technology networks and data and sensors and all of these things were just we could we could see how similar they were to things like wood and metal and plastics that they had affordances you could you could only bend them and move them and some things do some some things well but they don't do other things well i mean just like just like a piece of metal and um but we uh we, we didn't have the kind of equipment and the kind of jigs and the tool set to be able to integrate those materials in the design process and be kind of hands-on with hardware and software. Um, and so the classroom and, you know, in this case, at that time, it was Rhode Island School Design, which is where we had come out of. Uh, the classroom was a place where we could um, bring our own tools, maybe possibly even build these new tools with uh, with designers in the room and and be able to sketch and work with students to understand the potential of this new material while we continually evolving the palette of stuff that we were working with at the same time. And so, because uh, the work that we were doing for our clients in the early days uh, was always driven by the need to make invisible things really visible. Um, so thing, you know, we were doing things like mapping the web and um, doing information architecture and making kind of intangible things more tangible, like messing about with physical computing. And similarly, as we kind of moved into uh, doing things with experiential futures, you know, the work, which, which, you know, in that work, we're proposing kind of preferable futures in the form of maybe immersive or multi-sensory scenarios as opposed to you know, things like sci-fi films, uh, you know, where we, and we call this approach, uh, you know, kind of, well, we, we call this approach of actively kind of prototyping possibilities on the technology horizon. We call this idea kind of designing, design nonfiction, um, which, which we might get to uh, a little bit more how that played out in the years, but this practice of, using technology in our work, even though we might not quite be able to get our hands around it, but trying to kind of capture the qualities of technology and design with it as we go uh, is, is, you know, isn't really important to the work that we're doing and the method and the approach that we, that we take with the work that we're doing. That's great. Uh, Kind of looking at, um, an arc of tell art. And then I, I do want to dig into some more of these specifics and also, you know, how, how you got interested in design and, and how it plays out today. But uh, I think one of the really cool things uh, for tell art too, is if I, if I have this right, it was 2016 that you guys were awarded a, a Cooper Hewitt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did. 
Yeah, and um, yeah, and I think our work, you know, and it's interesting because in 2016, when we received that award, um, we realized that we received this award for a uh, within a discipline of design that wasn't around when we started our company in 2000. Uh, the idea of kind of interaction design, which was the kind of category that we won this Cooper Hewitt National Design Award in, which which you know the premise of it is is to commemorate lasting effects of uh, you know of a body of work on in the in the design space and and um, and that was an interesting moment because it because it it allowed us to kind of reflect a little bit about where where we were and and where we are and and where we were kind of going as an organization and we kind of internalized this a bit um, because when we when we started. Um, with kind of information design and you know, clearly communication of, you know, we're doing kind of communication of complex information. That was really our passion. Like we, we, we were, we wanted to take things that were completely um, invisible and put them on paper and make, and, and take this data collection and visualize it. Um, but in order to just take data and put it on paper, there is a bit of editing and storytelling in order to make that content compelling, um, as compelling as it is kind of clear. Um, and the web was kind of maturing um, pretty rapidly at that time. And, and, and we were able to then start to create more time-based and interactive stories about people and places and events and projects and we could we started to get to use photography and video and animation and sound and text using kind of live dynamic data along with um kind of hypertext interfaces and you know created these kind of interactive documentaries these interactive storytell these interactive stories online and as we're kind of in the classroom and we're pushing this palette of stuff that we're trying to use in our work to kind of, you know, because we're trying to move this stuff, these, these stories and these interactions away from the conventions of computer mouse screen and into our world, kind of blur that boundary a bit more. Um, you know, we, we say that we, we work kind of at the intersection of the physical and the, and the virtual world, but ultimately we were trying to really blur it. Um, and 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 I think because um, we saw, I think we knew that that it would continue to get blurrier and blurrier as we kind of advanced, as like technology advanced. But we wanted, you know, we started to hook up uh, things to the internet, hook up the real world to the internet, um, and connect people geographically in separate places using a sense of kind of social presence. Um, and try to enable these new forms of collaboration and content. And, um, you know, this got us into a space of doing kind of more experiential marketing things, use, you know, creating stunts, making props with behaviors that, that were kind of faked at some times, uh, that, we, that were only really done for filming and kind of telling stories um, through linear media. Um, but we'd always try to make the technology work. Um, and you know, so it's kind of authentic, and it and also it makes those stories, you know, um, you know, it, it's that authenticity of the technology working that makes the stories compelling and magical. Um, and right? yeah, you know, it's kind of we called it uh, auto magical. Yeah, uh, yeah. Matt Matt, Matt Cottom, the other the other founder of Teller, calls this kind of technique and auto it calls it an automagical experience <laughs> and people were fine people were looking for us to create these kinds of things um, and and it pushed us kind of even further forward we we're adopting technology where you know because we were you know we were kind of we were kind of a, a traditional design group that was using advanced technologies to um, you know kind of help companies understand vision understand who they where they are going who they wanted to be um it helped to push forward research it helped to kind of put a mirror up at sometimes for for these companies to see really about testing their assumptions about how they might integrate things 
Um, and, and, and the work that we were doing really became all of it, really everything it becomes these instruments for extracting people's attitudes about these new technologies, about these stories, about these brands. And we would create, you know, we started to get in more spatial because, you know, off the screen and into product and into more spaces because it, it allowed us to create these kind of stages and, and, and create props and, and really kind of create immersion that promoted and supported learning and debate and kind of further navigation into the complexities of the stories that we were trying to deliver and try to bring people through. Thanks. Yeah, there's a couple things too. I want to dive in on that because one, you talked about just the basically the rapid transition of uh, kind of what what we know is um, like internet enabled technology and AI and machine learning, just how much that has really progressed in the past 15, 20 years. But at its heart, you were still trying to solve information architecture problems. And from my, yep. my perspective, when I look at uh, information architecture, there's kind of, for me, it's like three big elements of a, a Venn diagram. You have the content or the, you know, what, what you're trying to get out. Uh, then there's the audience, like what are their needs? What, what are they doing? What are they trying to accomplish? And then there's the context itself. And for me, what's so interesting is even if a company has the same goals, just over time, how quickly the context in which they're participating, that environment is changing. And even audience, um, audience expectations changing, right? And, yeah. and, and those expectations never stay limited to a particular channel, right? Like, right. And, you know, some of the projects I've been on in the past, I've seen companies try to, um, how do I say, it's almost an excuse not looking at something because they're in this channel, right? But, um, you know, we're, we're not that type of company, but from a customer perspective, you know, I can do this with my bank. I can do this with my airline. I can do this with my hotel. Why can't I do this with you? Like just simple applications, but um, realizing to helping clients understand that uh, everything continues to evolve. And so what I, I really like about the work that, that you've done and stealing one of your phrases here is the notion of prototyping at scale. Mm-hmm. and how that helps because I, uh, in my training in design, what was really helpful for me in prototyping is breaking it up into two big chunks and then kind of oversimplifying, but you, you prototype the first part is build to think and the other is build to decide. And early on, like low proto, you know, low fidelity prototypes, just, are we even thinking about this the right way? Or in the theater world, this is like when you just do blocking on stage. Will we? Can this person really enter from here? Or this scene ended there on the other side. Will they be able to come in? Will we be able to fit this on? Right versus making big detailed decisions about something. And so when you've talked about prototyping at scale, when you're when you're working on you know, Museum of the Future or you're working on uh, concept cars with Toyota. Did it start in more of a traditional sketching way, like low fidelity stuff, and then then continue to progress? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, uh, first to you know, clarify, um, you know, Tellart is made up of, uh, you know, a, a, a very kind of large family uh, of people, personalities and individuals over the course of 20 years. And all of those people have kind of left a mark in some way um, and made, a, and made, made tell art what it is you know you know they've made me who i am you know to some to some degree um and i am i am just a mere representative of of all of those people that have that have come through these doors and i'm i'm doing my best uh during this podcast to represent all that so that's a that's a caveat to all of this uh i really want to you know there's a lot there's a lot that that goes into creating and collaborating for work at the kind of scales that we've been able to do and and i think it and and prototyping at scale um you know what was that what was that uh i think on the early web it was like you know publish early publish often right um and and now it's like prototype early prototype often you know really kind of make things tangible as quickly as possible and get around it and this is like it it, prototyping is just an extension of drawing you know it's just 
you know, this, the, you, he, you and I work on a project um, and we only have uh, m my ability to use language uh, to describe something, right? Um, and then you have your language that describes something. But the second we start drawing, we now have a common language between us, right? And and that's the kind of and and I and I think it was like um, in the in the in some in interviews that we did. I think it was Roseanne Summerson, the president of RISD, who described this act of drawing um, and how important it is to to designers. And it, prototyping being a kind of extension of drawing, it's it's what can we make together? That we can experience together, and that, and 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 when we're experiencing that thing together, what 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 answers are we looking for? What are we actually trying to understand to better understand when we make this thing? Are we are we trying to are we trying to understand what this thing should look like? Are we trying to understand technically how this thing should function, or are we trying to understand what role this new thing plays in this? interconnected multi-sensory uh, experience that involves projection, touchscreens, sensors, and, you know, capturing data, um, you know, as people are walking around. I mean, we're, we're creating these really connected environments at times. And every touch point plays a key role in a staff and, and, and is a character in creating an environment and creating a kind of full narrative. And so we have to make these things. We have to put them around us. We have to immerse ourselves inside of early versions of it to make sure that we develop these characters in a way that supports and drives towards the kind of actionable and measurable outcomes that these experiences are looking to, to achieve. Yeah, and that's that you know, that visual language and 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 drawing, that's what I think is so so important. Uh, because I, I feel like it's it reduces the the amount of time that uh, we might be talking past each other. And I remember some of my early tech projects when they were they were rooted in uh, steep <laughs> requirement <laughs> documentation. That yeah. one, it was slow, right? And we saw and we've seen positive things from Agile, kind of you know, it's it's what it needs to do over documentation. But it was documentation it was it was people talking past each other or writing past each other. Right. And not a lot of people really checking the specs uh, and uh, unclear on what we were really trying to accomplish. So another thing that I like that you're talking about for me is um, not only the getting to a shared language, but the intention and intentionality behind design. So what is it that we're really trying to solve? Is this is this a problem of X versus a problem of Y? Right? Is it is it is it an aesthetic thing that we're trying to solve? Is it a feature thing? Is it is it function? And quickly how quickly those can emerge when people are drawing and you know one of the other things i found is uh while many people in in business might be uncomfortable with with drawing i think visual language also helps enable uh critique is that uh sometimes we have trouble building things but humans are really good at criticizing things and uh they can see something up there and no no that's not what i'm thinking not like that like that right and you can see things quickly emerge and just how uh when it's going well the type of rapid almost rapid iteration collaboration that you can see just on a on a whiteboard or with pencil and paper yeah i mean it's a it's a um it's a powerful and sometimes you know kind of an and sometimes aspirational right uh it, it motive critique in, in lots of ways it it you know we can create a kind of ideal version of something and then test the assumption about whether that is actually an ideal an ideal solution i mean it, it allows us to do that in a way that's not precious and i think there's there's something also about prototyping early and often in your process with your clients that eliminates this feeling of preciousness about solutions, which is something we need to get over really quickly in, in some of the, in some of the problems we're trying to solve is the, 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 um, 
the urge to find the solution. Um, and if we can create a process together, if we can develop a language through prototyping and through making that sees these things we produce as, as just little lessons to be learned, that I think we can get to better solutions. You know, be, be less quick to, to solve and be um, more open to explore. Um, and and that, that's when you're working in uncertainty and you're working kind of in this uncertain space, you, you have to be comfortable with exploring in discomfort. And that's not a natural behavior of humans. You know, we don't, we're not naturally like tuned to be able to do that. Although, although it seems like a reasonable way to, yeah. to, to, to go about it, but it's not, it's an uncomfortableness that um, I think everyone has a capacity to, um, to engage with, but maybe doesn't have the right tools or the right kind of mindset in order to confront it. Yeah, I think from a team dynamic standpoint, you know, with collaboration, it's how how quickly and how much can we do to create a a safe space for people to say, "I don't know, but I want yeah. to find out." And because I, I think a lot of uh, generations of kind of almost business behavior and programming is about having the answer, having a solution. Where for me, good design is actually how well do we understand the problem and. Yeah. You know, kind of encouraging, and it's a bit of a cliche, but I've always encouraged my teams to uh, fall in love with the problem or have a healthy appreciation of the problem rather than falling in love with the solution. Because if you focus on the solution, that it feels like it becomes ego-driven because then you want to prove that your solution was right rather than if we really understand the problem, how we might be able to solve it more quickly. And I think from a business perspective too, with complex problems, it's really hard to... Uh, get a mindset uh, for folks that uh, let's let's spend a little bit more time making sure we understand the real problem. Are we solving the right thing? Um, I feel like sometimes uh, people will will guess what the solution is and and then then we have to drive towards that where I'm a big believer in some of the you know kind of complexity and systems thinking approaches where uh, it's basically humans are also really good, especially managers and organizations are really good at finding the problem. Unfortunately, they basically press the lever in the wrong direction so they can they can find the problem, uh, they can identify it, but then the way they treat it and most of the ways that they treat it are, are within their own control actually make problems worse. So how do you how do you help companies more quickly understand the problem space and do that? and bring in an iterative approach. I don't know if that's making sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, um, yeah, you just bring in a new methodology, right? That the, you just find an innovation methodology and you employ it in your business and that um, mitigates risk and it, um, it allows for uh, iteration and experimenting, but in a controlled, very controlled way. So it doesn't, go crazy. We don't lose, we don't lose too much revenue, you know, and I think that that's important. I think we need some basis of, of methodology here, but you also have to be willing uh, to throw away the method. Um, it's it, it, like any method employed has a shelf life typically, you know, and, and I think we've, we've had as designers, you know, we've tried to, you know, and I think in collaboration with other, and I, you know, collaboration with other groups, uh, with other groups within organizations, engineering and marketing, and leadership and HR. I mean, everyone's involved in in this in in the kind of work nowadays. We're we're in these kind of multidisciplinary moments, and we're trying to create a method, a language. So, like, you know, we had we had design thinking, and it helped. You know, and and empathy all of a sudden came into the, the, the circle and we let go customers or, um, we should, we should design for them. We should better understand them first. And then if we can better understand them, then I bet we can design things that they'll want. Um, and, and then we have things like lean and we have things like agile and all of these have their, I mean, they have a ton of value in, in the work, but they have, um, you know, but they're not that you, we can't, 
use them to solve every problem. We use them to solve the problems that they can help us solve, but knowing that there are, we have lots of tools, we have lots of ways to explore. And these just, these kind of standard traditional ways of doing it are, are just one. And we shouldn't really build our businesses or build our departments so tightly around a particular method because at some point that method is is going to um, is going to be uh, is going to kind of hit a cycle, and we're going to have to adjust. And if we're built too hard into a method, then we're not flexible, we're not adaptable, and therefore we can't um, we can't pivot, we can't quickly, we can't um, we can't react effectively, um, and uh, and we and become a little um, and the solutions themselves become. Uh, less than ideal because it's limited then by the method that we have. And uh, so backing up a little bit too, uh, you, you went to RISD, right? Yes. And are you, are you still connected? I, I thought that you're uh, an adjunct professor, but just. <clears throat> yeah, I, w- I, I've been an adjunct professor for, for a bit, uh, for a number of years now. Um, the last course I taught was probably last year, maybe. Um, but you know, continue to be involved as an advisor for thesis projects and critique, and um, you know, teaching teaching as as I can, and also try you know, teaching in other universities and things in 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 the area, University of Rhode Island, and and other places too. So when you're when you're you're teaching, this is just one of the things that I'm I'm interested in, and it uh, for me it goes back to the, kind of the notion of Austin Kleon that he says when you give advice, you're giving advice to your younger self. Uh, but yeah. when you're when you're critiquing or working with students today, what is it that you're sharing that you wished you would have known twenty years ago in approaching design projects? Um, I think one of the things that I, you know, while I kind of preach and while I think we preach a lot about this kind of iterative um, approach to work, I think I, I, I don't know if I necessarily practice as much iteration uh, when, I was, when I was a student. I didn't, you know, I would fall in love too quickly with the things. Um, and and even with those things, I think I didn't, um, I wasn't able to maybe um, kind of dig into the details of those things as much as maybe I could have in order to really establish the um, the kind of depth of the story that, that could be told. And I think while we have to be, while you have to not be precious, you also have to be able to invest at times, invest um, pretty deeply with ideas. And I think the other, the other part that we talk a lot about when we are with students um, is that, you know, technology isn't, it's still, it's like technology isn't a solution. It's a material. And this is, you know, while we have to go through um, edu- you know, we have to be educated and we have to go through tutorials and, we, and there's, there's, there's um, kind of syntax and, and kind of base foundation that, 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 you, um, that you need to understand in order to actually engage with that material. That's not so different than learning how to use a lathe. Maybe, maybe it takes a little longer, but, um, you know, a lathe, there's still a procedure that goes into using a lathe properly. But the the material is as limitless for exploration as a piece of paper is and we can learn from how that material pushes back on us you know I, I, the, one of the last uh, one of the last class that we that we taught was um you know using a using something uh, using processing as um as a, as a tool as a material to kind of explore visualizing uh different ideas and you know these are these are design students. Um, they don't have any formal kind of computer science um, training, but they they started to learn enough uh, through tutorials to be able to visualize a few things on screen. And 
I think there is this, um, you know, once I once I go through a tutorial and I know how to do a thing, I've 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 done that thing, and now I can move on to the next thing. But there's not a lot of exploring on what can be done with that with that knowledge, and how you can kind of draw with it, and it can be expansive and exploratory, and you can create infinite variations with just the changes of like a couple little variables. And really kind of um, kind of like soaking that in for a bit, yeah, yep, without having without moving on to the next thing is is you know kind of holding back from the from the desire to continue to to advance and just kind of sit with it for a bit is something is 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 a really hard thing to for for you know that i would that i wish i knew more that i wish i did more of you know i wish i just sat with 3d modeling like a simple tutorial of 3d modeling for a long period of time rather than just trying to keep on feature creeping and learning you know the totality of a piece of software right you know i feel for me in what you're saying it's reminding me that when I start to explore something that it's usually in the form of a hobby but when i start to explore a new system then yeah. then the the new sets of metaphors that I have to understand how another system might be behaving or reacting is also that's I, I like the idea of playing with multiple materials and then oh this is like blank and also getting back to storytelling also the power of metaphor when you're trying to share your ideas with other people it's like blank for blank right it yeah it's not that easy, but when you when you start to see other systems in action yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, like language as a system too. I was in a talk, I think it was a year or two ago at the information architecture conference, but somebody had asked, uh, Jorge Arango, uh, about how just, it was a, you know, just a really quick answer or quick question. Uh, how does one become a better designer? And you know, it's, there's like, I'm like, where, do, where do you start? Cause there's so many different things, but he, he thought about it a little bit and he said one, one thing he would encourage somebody is to learn another language and uh and just mm -hmm. going through the system of learning another language the system the cultural variables at play uh also in a language it just i think it broadens your thinking and uh helps you expand right you're it's already accessible in that it's language and we're human but when you start to learn another system that's similar you know that's yeah. where you start to see where does it differ how is this the same what what might i be able to apply in the future and i thought that was a nice uh answer i don't i don't think the person appreciated it uh yeah. it's just, that sounds like a lot of work <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and i i think the i think there's a bit of um you know because we have in in a lot of industries in a lot of ways kind of pointed at technology as a solution um, that we tend to um, kind of think within the limits of what technology can afford to design new solutions. Um, and I think the one during during our time at RISD, um, it was the focus was less about the tools and the materials as much as it and, and it was much more focused on how to solve problems, not necessarily what to solve them with. And that way of thinking as a designer was instilled in us um, during the time we had at RISD. And I think that that's something that we try to always get back to in our work uh, and in, in the work that we do with students is really while we might be using the material as a vehicle for exploration, it's really much more about the way in which you approach the problem and work through the problem. And that's the, that's the kind of safe space that academia affords you during that time is to explore how you work through um, a challenge. And um, and there's you know understandably there's a lot of pressure in in, in academia net to to kind of move towards career oriented tracks and and get to a skill set um, that is applicable in the real world. But also, what can differentiate you from all from everyone else is how you uniquely think through 
things. And when students come to us looking for internships or, you know, and, 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 and things like that, and they show us their kind of polished portfolio of 3D models and renderings of exhibitions that they've designed and products and services and interfaces, you know, the first thing we do is say, okay, this is all great, but show me your sketchbook. Show me how you, don't show me what you've done, show me how you've done it. I, yeah, I like that a lot. Because one, one of the things I struggle with when I've seen some really great looking portfolios is no indication of also what somebody's role was yeah, uh, and what was the challenge that they were trying to solve. And, uh, it, you know, it's like, I, I really like the aesthetics that somebody is laying out, but I, you know, the hard part for me too is knowing if it's a really complex problem. Mm-hmm. You were part of a team, and that that also for me, it's it, 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 there's almost a level of distrust with the job candidate if uh, kind of portraying that they were uh, a lone person designing a very sophisticated system. And so that's that's one of the big things I look for. Is, can you can you tell me the problem you were trying to solve and and how this design helped and what yeah. your role was? Yeah. But I, you know what, I, I, I feel like I missed the ball. I love the idea, of, like, show me your sketchbook, right? Because that would answer, like, uh, what was your thought process? How did you, how did you attack this? And, <laughs> and, what, and also what different directions, right? That, uh, you know, maybe here are three or four different paths that I might have taken. And this is, this is how this, this solution evolved. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think holding, I think that, like, if I could, like, the, if I could give... The one piece of advice I think I would probably consistently over the past 20 years continue to give to any student that's working in this space is carry a sketchbook all the time and use it as a tool in exposing your thinking to yourself so that it can be a reflection and a, and a, and a prototype and, and, and allows you to kind of iterate through ideas in a, in a, in a quicker way yeah. because you can constantly react to yourself. Um, and I kind of come on and off and using one and, you know, now in this time of, this time of quarantine, I'm, I'm back at it. I have one constantly in front of me at my, at my desk and um, it's just changed uh, the kind of depth of, of ideas, um, I think. And it allows you to to get deeper for yourself. Yeah. Often we're like quick emails and, you know, we're, we're very kind of like quickly getting through tasks and we don't, you know, we, we need to find those moments where we can, we can really invest in, in our own, in our own thinking. Yeah. And as much as I, I love new technology, I feel like for me, it's, a, a good notebook and a good pen is yeah, no, the most comfortable. Yeah. And it, 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 I feel like it, it always helps. It helps my thinking more than even uh, using keynote or using Adobe or using, yeah. you know, just even just, just something about the, the act of moving, moving a pen across paper seems to really help my thinking. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what that yeah. is, but yeah, I mean, we're visual, you know, we're visual people. I mean, you know, people attracted to this industry are, are just, you know, they, they, they're triggered visually, typically, you know, they're triggered lots of ways, but I think we, we, we want to absorb things in a, in a, in a, in a meaningful way um, on paper and, and, and in image and with color and with dimension and, um, and that kind of evokes feelings and emotions. And, and those kinds of emotions are things that we embed in the solutions in order to get others to empathize with the work that we're doing. Are you, are you familiar with Mike Rohde? And I might be mispronouncing his last name, but he, uh, he, he does a lot on the, the notion of sketch noting. No, huh? No, I'm not, not familiar with. So, so this is where I was nerding out on on notebooks. But he and a colleague recently had like a, a, a GoFundMe type of thing. Is they're they're working harder and harder to develop what they believe is the best notebook. Uh, and <laughs> awesome. and I'm a sucker for that type of challenge, right? It's like, yeah, uh, is this is this paper right? I you know, will it lay yeah. flat? Is it durable enough? Is it light enough yeah, to carry with me? It's like, oh, do if I use that that particular pen on this particular paper and it shows through on the back, I can't use that back page. Right, right. I'm, yeah. like fli- I'm like flipping through my notebook right now, seeing all the like spots where I'm like, oh, if I didn't just make that mark right there, yeah. it wouldn't have bled through in that way. Oh. 
when you when you were talking about uh, technology and approaches, one of the things I'm kind of curious about too is because um, I, I know I wasn't I wasn't this thinking about this when I was early in my career, but almost the unintended consequences of technology and its use. And so yeah. for, for context, if I, I'm probably butchering the name, but I believe it was Paul Virillo uh, or Virilio, who's a French cultural theorist and urbanist. Uh, but he, I, there was some quote that he had that was basically when you invented uh, electricity, you invented the first electrocution. When you invented the first plane, you invented the first plane crash. And to me, that was like encouraging, trying to think through the consequences of this. And I'm just kind of curious on uh, your thoughts about kind of unintended consequences with, with new technologies. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's unintended consequences that are positive. Um, and that's, that's always a plus. Uh, or that, you know, technology, um, you know, is, is adopted in a way that, that maybe wasn't planned for, but, all, but useful, you know, we, we like, we like those scenarios, but yeah, when, when it, um, when you, when technology potentially um, creates maybe a, a less preferable um, ad- adoption um, or gives the opportunity for a less preferable adoption of it, then yeah, things can things can go bad. Things can things cannot go the way that that uh, you you expect. And I think it, it's becoming more important um, to get ahead of those things in our work and to be thinking more about the the future um, and the implications of decisions that we make now and how um, how those decisions might or could be extrapolated into many different futures with the solutions that we create. And I think we, you know, we, we, we want to be pulling that future forward in our work in some way um, and really try to explore the different scenarios, good and bad of what happens with the kinds of um, integrations of technologies or the solutions that we're creating. And, and we do this kind of exercising with our clients a lot. We think about those, uh, those implications. And, and what we try to do is consider what the preferable, what the preferred version uh, of the future that our client is looking for. And try to when we understand in order to understand that preferred version of the future there's lots of connected things happening uh there's things kind of socially economically technological wise politically there's all sorts of things going on that shape that future um and all of those factors um can push or pull those ideas in one way or the other depending on how you design them and while we can't, you know, while, while humans will always be unpredictable, uh, we try to do our best in the early stages of our strategy and design work to help paint the pictures of the different use cases based on some understanding of how, of trends and how that future um, could react to, to ideas. One of the last things I wanted to talk to you about uh, was, and we I think we mentioned it or touched upon it early, but the notion we we used the term design nonfiction, but wanted to dig into that what I believe is a fantastic documentary series that Tellart has that you're producing called Design Nonfiction. If you don't mind, can you just tell folks a little bit about the project, where that came out from, and and where it's going? Sure. Um, so the Design nonfiction um, and nonfiction in general has always been a kind of part of Tellart's DNA. And our projects um, are about making sense of the natural material and virtual worlds uh, and bringing new tools um, to our work uh, and bringing new tools to our, to our audiences to engage them in kind of new and meaningful ways. And like I, I mentioned a little earlier, kind of around 2016, 
um, when we won the Cooper Hewitt uh, National Design Award, we started to uh, kind of look back um, a little bit on kind of what brought us uh, to that moment. And then, and then in that, kind of look forward a bit into where the, the future of our discipline, this discipline of design was going. Um, and, you know, as we, um, as designers, you know, we hope that everything we make is inspired through kind of dis the discovery of human needs. However, like sometimes the rate of technological change and growth is so rapid that it gets out ahead of the designer's ability to find its best form or to match its potential to the human need. And so bringing, bringing together um, and repurposing kind of new technologies with the need of needs of people uh, and the planet and its role it is kind of the role of, of, of kind of the work that we've been doing over, over these years. And whether we're creating kind of products or services or near future stuff or kind of creating multi-sensory experiences, um, all of this is affected by technology and our ability as and, and our ability to do this um, has has been advanced you know, because of the technology. So this project of Design Not Fiction kind of is looks at the history of design from the Industrial Revolution uh, to the Bauhaus, to the web boom, and looks at signals of change today to imagine what comes next, exploring what remains timeless in design education and how students today should prepare in new ways uh, for for the novel challenges and possibilities that lie ahead, and how we um, uh, so how we did this or why we did this um, design and fiction kind of is the transformations in design between you know between all of these kind of important periods, but um, and now at the rise of machine learning, and we had interviewed um, and. We did this for a number of reasons. You know, we we were reflecting a bit. We were kind of looking at ways to develop our team by harvesting kind of conversations with top practitioners. We wanted to research and strategize about the trends and drivers in order to plot a course for ourselves. You know, as as an organization, we're looking. Uh, we were looking at ways to, um, you know, position ourselves. Um, just, we were also interested in distributing knowledge of, of what we knew um, in some way and who we had met and who we had worked with. And we, over the years, um, have kind of crossed paths with, uh, through teaching and practicing with a lot of kind of influential uh, or a lot of people who have kind of influenced our work. Uh, and 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 in turn, they have also influenced um, the industry. And you know, some are considered design and technology pioneers. And we chose people only. You know, it wasn't really. You know, we weren't actively trying to do a survey of every impactful voice worldwide. I mean, I think that would be an ideal, that's the ideal evolution and that's the ideal goal of this series is to really reach around every corner of the world and really bring together the a diverse, the most diverse and most, um, you know, and, and, and most kind of um, Almost, you know, yeah, the most kind of worldwide view of of the design profession and and the and the the pioneers that have been driving it. And and but we we only collaborated with a small fraction within a small universe that 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 we that we had uh, context to be able to get. And these interviews um, are online. Um, you know, we have released a, a handful of them. We continue to release these interviews, you know, uh, as, as soon as we possibly can. I think we're trying to get one out, at least one out every few weeks. And currently we have about 50, 52, 56 of them um, in total. 
It's a, it's a fantastic series. I mean, uh, so kudos to you and the team. I just, to anybody listening, strongly encourage you to go check it out and check me if I'm wrong here, but I believe they, they can get there both from the Tellart site and also on, on YouTube if they just search for Tellart or Tellart Design Nonfiction. Yeah, we've been trying to, um, you know, we're we're putting these out in multi in, in many different channels. You can find a kind of index of them on the tellart.com site. Um, there, there's also a YouTube channel. I believe there's a Vimeo channel, and we're currently working on uh, podcast versions of of some of the interviews. So, uh, trying to kind of deliver this content in lots of ways uh, that are flexible. Uh, you know, so people can consume it at their own pace. Yeah, I, and I just really, again, I think it's great and really appreciate you and your team putting putting that out there as well, sharing that with the world. And so, uh, Nick, I just uh, want to thank you uh, for taking the time and uh, joining us on the Iowa idea. I really appreciate uh, having you here and, and sharing your perspective with folks. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate being on and, um, yeah, I look forward to, to you know, connecting with with anybody who has any questions uh as a follow-up uh you can you can easily email me uh, or um get in touch with me via linkedin or um other other modes of smoke screens or smoke, <laughs> <laughs> smoke signals carrier smoke pigeon. signals carrier pigeon uh anything i'm i'm you know i can i'll, I'll get the message right on well have a fantastic day and uh, stay healthy Yeah, great. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye.